Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery written and directed by Ryan Johnson. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. Okay, so here we are. Happy New Year, everyone. You're in the future, we're in the past, and we are not in our normal places. So that's why our backgrounds look weird. And <laughs> I am personally ashamed of how low quality mine is. So apologies to everyone on YouTube and Spotify that can see this. And to people not on that, just I was hi. To all of you that are not watching the video podcast. <laughs> so knives out. Two, Glass Onion is here. This is a little bit of a hot take for me. I watched it just kind of recently, and I'm still sort of wrapping my heads around it. Um, heads, plural. Uh-huh. Hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's you and your identical twin brother's heads that are being right. wrapped. Yeah, yeah right. This whole time. <laughs> just like our adaptation video. That's how you get so much done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish. So going into this movie, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect, but I had a vague notion that it was going to be another Knives Out kind of movie. Where'd you get that idea? Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> prescient of you. Thank you. <laughs> but like, like weirdly so. And, you know, like because it's standalone, I felt confident that Ryan Johnson of all people could truly execute on the it's a standalone and make it work and not kind of like, you know, Marvel standalone movies, as we know, aren't standalone right. movies. There's lots of ways to do sequels that are sort of standalone, but aren't really. And so it was somehow exactly what I expected. And I have like complicated feelings about that. My overall feeling while watching it was this is extremely entertaining. And I hope that they make as many of these as is physically mm -hmm. possible because uh, it's just charming and humorous and the actors are all great and having so much fun i wish i was in one of these casts like uh -huh. how much fun could you be having with these people on a room so really enjoyed that also had similar thoughts similar bumps that i had with the original knives out which is the the subverting the expectations subverting the genre stuff in ways that i think are interesting and effective but like are a little bit of a letdown to me. And I think I was more prepared for it this time, knowing that how the original Knives Out worked. But that's something I want to talk about with you guys also is this sort of like 
these are murder mysteries, but they're also not. But they also are. And like how he weaves that and navigates that and what's lost and what's gained by the way it's executed. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about. And so also like for listeners, just to let you know, we're going to talk about the original Knives Out. So if somehow you've only watched Glass Onion and not the original warning that we'll probably spoil that a little bit. But yeah, so I'm curious to hear from you guys. Trisha, what are your thoughts on Glass Onion? Yeah, uh, this was maybe my most anticipated movie of the year. I was just really excited about it because I adore Knives Out and it didn't disappoint me. I went and saw it in the theater during the theatrical run, which I think makes a huge difference. Um, and I think uh, is something I want to talk about. And, and, you know, we don't have to get super into it right now. But one of the things is that Ryan Johnson has said in interviews uh, that for him, wanting people to see films theatrically, not just his, but movies generally theatrically, has not as much to do with the technology or the sound or the projection or anything like that. It has to do with the experience of watching in a large group of people, right? Like strangers who are seeing something together for the first time and going through the, like, on the emotional journey together. And I will say that was exactly the experience that I had. There was a lot of energy around the theatrical run and sitting in a theater with a bunch of people who just wanted to have a great time at a <laughs> twisty, hilarious mystery. And as you said, Michael, wildly just entertaining film. Um, it, it was just such a great viewing experience, like people vocally reacting and, you know, um, gasping and laughing. It was wonderful. Um, and so I really, really like this movie. I agree. I want, I want there to be as many as they can make with authenticity and exuberance. <laughs> yes. Johnson has said that if, you know, if he and Daniel Craig ever stop feeling like it's fun, they're going to stop making them. And I'm really glad about that. I hope that that stays true, that they hold to that. And the producer Ram Bergman, uh, who is also responsible for these films. So anyway, I just really, really like it. I think it's a very different movie than Knives Out in so many ways. And it is still one that I really enjoy on its own terms. Um, and I think that it is in a standalone basically. And so you're not losing anything by not having seen Knives Out. But I do think John, Ryan Johnson's films generally, and especially these two, are both very, very literate films that benefit uh, people if you've not just seen them, but seen all the whodunits that have inspired them um, and the things that he's messing with in the form. And so, um, you know, The Last of Sheila being a big influence on this one, that's a whodunit I really love. And so all of that to say, Glass Onion is exactly to my taste and I really, really love it. Um, and I'm excited that he was able to pull off this, Ryan Johnson was able to pull off this magic trick again. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I also saw it in theaters when it came out for that one week theatrical run and I had a great time. My feeling walking out of the theater was just like, yeah, 10 out of 10. Great. You know, same feeling as I had watching Knives Out in theaters. Loved it. Coming back home for the Christmas break, people were now seeing it on Netflix and I was hearing just from friends and family like, oh, yeah, it was good, but like not as good, not as good as Knives Out and it's kind of a letdown. And I was like, really? Because I that was not my experience in the theater. It just felt like, oh yeah, that was 
that was different, uh, different enough to be its own standalone thing, but exactly the same amount of fun that I remember Knives Out being. Um, so I went back and rewatched Knives Out and Glass Onion, you know, on a TV on Netflix. And it was interesting because watching them back to back, which I imagine a lot of people did, because if they're watching a streaming, it's like, I'm going to get ready for this one by watching the first one. You know, they are different enough. You know, Knives Out does feel like there's something it's both these movies are very much of a moment in time. They're so of the year that they are set in. And yet Knives Out feels a bit more timeless in its aesthetic. And I think just kind of like a little bit of the way it's crafted. And there's something about early on in Glass Onion, there's the movie almost announces an even more of the momentness with like random cameos and kind of like almost like a breezier, sometimes a little bit more like like this is a TV movie feel when there's like Yo-Yo Ma kind of like munching on some pizza like as a joke or <laughs> Serena Williams is like on the screen to just have a cameo. It, it feels just different. And and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think if people wanted to go back to that, like slightly more timeless, slightly more clue feeling of Knives Out, this feels it's just different. And I was feeling that more watching them back to back. So I'm, I'm curious to investigate that and if that if anybody else felt that way about it. But overall, I I just love watching a group of actors have this much fun and and get to be a part of like a story that is actually like deliciously satirical of mm. our moment because you know we don't get many we, we're getting this in tv you know I, i've been finally watching the white lotus which feels also like some great commentary and satire of our you know moment but we don't get many movies that are get to be this sharp and biting and just almost like vicious about the, the things that are just really annoying right now about culture and society. <laughs> and it's just it really gets really cathartic and fun to see like A-list actors get to play these satirical archetypes of our culture at this very moment. So I'm, I am just delighted this exists and I would like to continue to have these as we've been saying. So many more, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. OK. And Brian. Yeah, I watched it um, at home at a friend's place and it was late. So I will say that in terms of my experience watching it for the first time, um, which was the first half. I was just like, this is I'm having a blast. I was like, this is so fun and funny. And, and you know, the like the whole subversion of of Blanc just figuring out the murder mystery in like a second, you know, just like <laughs> made me laugh so hard because I was just like, oh, man, the movie just did. You know, we talked about that bathos thing that Ryan Johnson does in The Last Jedi where he sets something up and then pulls the rung out. That was just like, here's what this entire movie is going to be. And then in once in basically like 30 seconds, it was like, no, that that's literally over now. That's never going to happen. Um and uh, and then the second half, you know, the, this movie does the um, the sort of the sort of reveal of here's what's been going on this whole time kind of thing, just like Knives Out does. Um, I started to just feel like, man, we're doing a lot of flashback work. We're doing a lot of reveal work. We're doing a lot of stuff here, you know, and, and I started to just really kind of feel fatigued by it. And and I like while I was watching it, I was like, I don't know how rewatchable this movie is going to be compared to Knives Out, where I feel like I could watch that movie every day. Um, and uh, and then when the movie was over, like literally when the credits roll, my, my friend and I just kind of both went like, huh, like not, you know, we weren't standing up and applauding. We were just like, OK, 
okay. Uh, and then, uh, then I did rewatch it and I had a lot more fun with it. Um, especially with the second half, because now I, I knew what the structure of the movie was. I knew what all, you know, not all of, because it's some stuff I missed, but I knew what most of the, um, the sort of payoffs were going to be and that kind of thing. So the second time through, I was able to just embreviate the, um, you know, the, the, the whole of it and, uh, and just appreciate stuff. I didn't, I didn't appreciate the first time around and just, appreciate a scene for what that scene was not for what it felt like it had to be doing in the whole, in, in the greater scheme of things, you know? Um, because when a movie takes 35 minutes to do a flashback until you get back to now, that can feel like if you want, if you want to see what the next scene is in the movie, you've got to wait for this entire, basically half act of a, of a flashback. So, and which knives out doesn't do, it doesn't like 12 minutes, this sort of martyr reveal. So like, I want to, I want to talk about this movie versus knives out and how do you watch a movie that isn't a sequel necessarily, but is set in the same universe with the same detective and is pretty much expecting you've probably seen the first one if you're going to watch this one. So I think that's all really interesting stuff to get into. But all in all, I liked it a lot more the second time and feel like now this is a movie I could rewatch, you know, on occasion and have a really good time with it. Thanks. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say, Brian, on your first viewing, the the first half was really working for you and the second half wasn't because I had kind of a reverse experience where because so much of the first half is about you know, there's there's so much fun to be had in the first half with just introducing the characters. But once they're on the island and they're kind of starting to butt heads, it's all about this unknown thing around Andy. And there's there's it's a all but there's like a trial and there's this thing and there's a lot of references to to a situation we're not going to truly understand until later. And I actually found myself being frustrated where I was like, okay, I, I think this all means something, but it doesn't mean anything to me right now. Right. And I don't feel like I have quite enough information for these scenes to really play in the way that I think they're supposed to be playing. And I, and I liked the first half more on a second viewing because I had the context for it. And I was like relieved when we got to go to the flashback section. because I'm like, oh, this is what the story is actually Here about. Yeah. Here's the thing they've always, they've been talking about. And and here's actually the Janelle Monet character I've been waiting for because I heard she was great in this movie and she's like barely present in the first half or whatever. Mm. And kind of like a strangely, yeah, quiet and in the background character. Um, so, yeah, and, and interesting, to, interesting to hear that because I did have the opposite experience of I was happy to be in flashback land because I was actually a little bit adrift in present land um, in my first viewing, at least. Right. Yeah. I, th I think once once they're all there and settled, then, yeah, maybe I felt that way a little like you're talking about. But I just mean like the whole like opening the box and like right. all the stuff Johnson is doing with style with his little oh, split yeah. screens and everything. And then getting to the island and seeing the glass on it, seeing like James Bond be so excited by his lair. And be like, this is amazing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, no, and, and, and I, I totally agree with you. Like some of those opening scenes are some of the most fun scenes in the movie. Like when they're when they're getting on the boat and they're all pulling up and all their you know various uh introductions with you know i love kit hudson wearing the like mesh face mask <laughs> yeah, right. there's just so much and ethan hawk's cameo is just yeah. so good so You're yeah good. i yeah there's just so much good stuff in in that first half but yeah i think it's it's when they get to the island and they're settled in and they're talking about something i don't understand for so long mm. that's where i kind of was adrift for a, a little bit of the movie this episode is brought to you by movie curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. 
From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. It's a great way to discover the best of cinema. For example, Decision to Leave, Park Chan-wook's film that Trisha recently gushed about, is exclusively showing on Mubi in many countries as of December 9th. She said it was one of the films of this year that is not to be missed, and now you don't have to. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash beyond the screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. You're identifying something I felt the first time around too, Alex. And one of the criticisms of this movie that I've read is that it's not a true ensemble in the way that Knives Out actually is. Where, you know, obviously with Knives Out, we meet the family and we meet Marta long before we actually meet Benoit Blanc. And Mm. Benoit Blanc's character is we're viewing him from the outside. Or rather, we're viewing him through, you know, the way that... (laughs) the various members of the family see him, but in particular Marta um, and how she starts to form a relationship with him as he works his way through the case. And so I think very early on in Knives Out, um, there's a sense of weight and dimension to the supporting characters. And as we start to put the puzzle pieces together of who they are, we are seeing those dimensions come out both in the expository information and in the, you know, interview style that we see, like, as they're being... um, Interviewed? Well, they're being themselves, right? They're being tested by these police officers. So the way that they tell the story is revealing character information. And so I think that there's... There's something about that that makes it easy to find your footing and feel like you're a part of that family, like really early on, and like no feel like you understand as much about the dynamics as you're ever gonna as you're ever going to, basically. That also that movie also puts the characters in rooms together more and lets them like bounce off of each other and really play off of each other more than than Glass Onion does. So I think you're hitting on it right there, Alex, which is on first viewing, I was just like, who the hell are these people? Mm-hmm. How do they know each other? What in the world could their relationship be? And is it a relationship that I care about, right? It's not a familial relationship. They don't act as a singular unit very often. And the movie doesn't take a ton of opportunities to put them all in the same room. And so I think that there is that missing sense of like a real ensembleness to it. And it, the movie in exchange puts us in Blanc's POV where we are trying to take them all as they come, as Blanc meets them and as he puts together information about them. But even that doesn't feel true once we know the reveal that he actually does know a lot about more about them than he's letting on. And so I think there is that sort of sense of it. You can feel like lost the first time you watch it a little bit or less invested in the character relationships. 
especially in the first half when you are lacking the information. That being said, I found it incredibly rewarding to watch it a second time around where I do know everybody's relationships with each other. I do know the entire story. And as those pieces get filled in in the second half, it becomes more fun to watch them all in a room together because I do know more about them. But like, you know, um, Catherine Hahn's character, Claire, and Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, Lionel, those Characters are not the same level of like care and attention put or development, I guess, put into them that it feels like some of the supporting characters do in Knives Out. Yeah, Knives Out is like twice as many characters, but they are all so, so, in, so quickly just here's like the this character's right. thing, you know, yeah. and this movie, it's like you do it with like Kate Hudson, like you do it a little bit, but mm-hmm. but it's like half as many characters and they are a little more kind of vague and just who they are. Yeah. Well, and I think this is where my fr- like frustration is like too strong of a word, but whatever it like knock that down half is with this movie and a little bit knives out. But for this movie, I I was also feeling what you were feeling, Brian, where the whole first half of the movie, I was into it and interested. And the only kind of lost feeling I was having was knowing that there's something that's going to come and like upset everything. And like, you're clearly with, well, probably a murder. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. But also probably a Ryan Johnson twist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying very hard to not do the thing I did in knives out where it's like, no, I don't trust you movie. You're trying to one up me. And like, I caught myself doing that and I was like, no, it's fine. Just go along with it. It's it's, um, Zen. It's cool. But I, but I think what happened at the, at the midpoint is that that is when the murder finally happens and all the things that get set up. Like that's when I go to the Agatha Christie, everybody's in a house who done it. Like these people are trapped and their backstory is going to slowly unravel in these scenes where you put them in a room together and a little bit comes out, a little bit comes out. Like that's what I'm here for. Like that's the part of the murder mystery that I really enjoy is that like character slowly unraveling in this high pressure situation. And it's just interesting that the movie, like that's the part of the whodunit that it subverts where it's like, right. instead of doing that, we're going to do it. another movie within this movie almost that tells you all those things and so i kind of felt like the flashback while still fun kind of took the wind out from the whodunitness for me so that like when we came back to uh back to the island i realized oh it's time for the third act i guess there is no more mystery to solve like Mm -hmm. like when is the mystery being solved is kind of an interesting question with both of these movies right. that, that they play with. Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I sort of did a quick structural breakdown of the two movies because I was trying to kind of put my finger on like, why did the, why did especially the flashback feel so long to me? Um, and uh, other than just it by design is, you know, and, but I was just like, what is hooking us in each kind of like, what's the dramatic question? What's the hook of each act of, of these movies? And so knives out murder immediately right like well presumed murder um and then act one sort of normal interview exposition like we're kind of learning all this stuff act 2a like this early into the movie half 30 minutes in or something like that is like marta did it it was an accident like oh okay so now like (laughs) that was fast and then and it's like about less than like a 12 minute flashback about all that but then we're like oh she did it, but like she's innocent. So like we we are caring for her. Like we we really want her to cover her tracks. So then we have 
up until the midpoint, it's her covering her tracks. And it's like these really exciting, fun little like her, you know, trying to throw the, the um, piece of wood away and stuff. Um, and then the midpoint is she gets she inherits the house. Right. So then it's like it's like the car chase half act of the movie where then Ransom becomes her sidekick, which is super interesting. Right. Because then that throws this whole other wrench into the works. But then now someone is like who hired Blanc and who is like sending her messages like so, something's going on, even though she knows kind of why Harlan died. And then act three is all the reveals, figuring it all out. And kind of, you have this like big reveals up until like the very, very end. And then glass onion is we're invited to a murder mystery. So there's no murder. There's no, there's no sort of hook at the beginning other than like the puzzle box stuff is really cool. And who is this miles character? Right. But there's no, like we're solving a murder. And then act two, a is just the murder mystery itself and like what are we doing at the house and da 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 and who are these characters so again there's kind of no hook yet then finally duke dies and then andy quote unquote dies now we go back in time at the midpoint to like here's a character here's a murder you didn't know happened which is which is interesting right but it's like a little weird to be like oh okay there was a murder that we didn't even know about and then we have like a 35 minute long flashback where we're we're leading up back just to get back to present day to like see what was happening behind the scenes which again on rewatching is a really cool segment of the movie i think for the first time through i was just like man we're doing so much of this and th- but then the third act is well, the guy who like had the most motive, like did it, you know, like, so we're just spending like a lot of the third act just being like, well, yeah, the person whose entire empire is at risk. If like this person reveals information, like, yeah, that that's who did it. And I do appreciate both these movies are like, yeah, kind of the guy you probably expected probably did it, did it, but it's just lots of new information you had. Right. And then the second time through, I really appreciated what happens after that, which is like, yeah, now all the truth is out there, but will the people in the room actually, who are all witnesses to this, will they admit? I was like, oh yeah, that's the interesting part about the third act of this movie. Not the reveal of who did it, but like who these characters are and are they actually going to do the right thing or not, you know? But I but I realized that the like hook of Knives Out is deeper or like, I think more engaging and it keeps changing in a way where you're like, oh man, there's a new hook. Oh man, there's a new hook. And this movie just is like a slow build and there, and the hooks are just kind of different. And to be very clear, Ryan Johnson, because I assume you're like, this is how you're going to make your third movie is by listening to us. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't want you to just do the same structure every time. Like, like I love, you know, I do love that these movies are just kind of like trying stuff out and being like, here's what all murder mysteries are, whodunits, et cetera. Let's do something that hasn't been done. Let's try this out. Let's try putting this beat here instead of over here and see what does that actually mean for the story? So I appreciate all that. And I want to see 10 more of these that just try stuff out, you know, but I, I wanted to do that structural work just to kind of identify identify why why there might have been some things that didn't feel like they were clicking for me in the same way as they did in the first movie. Well, and all of this goes back to Ryan Johnson's interest, I think, in making a different kind of murder mystery. Um, mm-hmm. This is not the like old money, October-y, autumn-y, you know, um, <laughs> sophisticated, buttoned up New England family movie. That is a kind of murder mystery, you know, in the old creepy house and all of this stuff. Uh, But this is sort of a subgenre, like you can think of it as like a vacation mystery, where you take all the characters out of their normal lives and you drop them into a foreign place. Um, And then, you know, with the construction or the artifice, I guess, of a game that's been put together, 
um, or some pretext, right, of bringing them all together. That's kind of like what you think of as being vacation mystery. And there aren't actually a ton of them. It's definitely like a sort of small subgenre of murder mystery. But it's one of my favorites. That's kind of what I was hinting at earlier. And I think it's perfect for the themes that Ryan Johnson is tackling in this movie. And so, like, you know, I kind of hit on the inherited wealth, white privilege, uh, old money uh, critique that we're getting from the satire in Knives Out. And we're getting a wide variety of like new money, like shallowness, influencer culture, you know, um, the tech billionaire, the things that are fast and slick and loud that are shouting at us right now. Um, and that kind of wealth and, or I guess sort of the dance that is required by people who are, um, riding those kinds of waves of popularity and media cycles. Right. And so I think that this kind of like glamorous, broad daylight vacation, (laughs) right? The, The vacation vibes to this. I think are perfect for the themes that are being expressed. And so I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people miss or potentially, and I don't know if you guys have said this, but people might miss the tone and the mood and the look of Knives Out um, because we kind of associate that more. That's sort of like the more um, cultural, recognizable face of the murder mystery genre, right? That is the clue, like old, big old mansion, uh, version of this. And I think that's simply not what Ryan Johnson was trying to make here. And I do think that sort of the like big, wide, bright, sparkling, you know, loud costumes. Uh, I love Jenny Egan's costume design in this, but all of that I think is speaking directly to the kind of social satire it is. So I think there's a big difference. Like, you know, you hit, you mentioned earlier, Brian on, Ryan Johnson isn't making straight ahead genre movies that are like maybe slightly self-aware, but are basically straight ahead genre things. He's Mm -hmm. really blending comedy, like comedic social satire into murder mysteries that are also still entertaining as murder mysteries. And in this case, just because of the kind of thing that it is, right, it feels, as you pointed out, Alex, so of the moment, it's about something different. And so it's like, it just feels like a very different movie. When I think just going back to the themes and what this movie is trying to say, I think that affects plot because, you know, I think in a different version of this kind of story, you would maybe spend half the movie uh, playing the game that Miles Braun set up for sure. people, you know, like like you, that's what our expectation is going onto the island is like, OK, the first half might be they're playing the game of the fake murder and then a real murder happens somewhere in the middle of the game. But this movie is not about like a brilliant billionaire who came up with a great game. It's about an idiot and about (laughs) Benoit Blanc just like seeing the obvious answer immediately. And so it's just it's it's tricky because I think on, on the one hand, the movie makes all the right choices for its thematic argument, which is we as a culture are worshiping these icons and they're all just you know, there, there's nothing there. They're they're just, they're just empty. Mm -hmm. And, and so the thing that we would expect from the movie where you're invited to a special Island and you're going to play a game and like you expect that that's going to be what the movie's about. It's not about that. It's about how 
these people all think of themselves as special and amazing and extraordinary. And there's just there's no there there. And so I think, yeah, it's 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 weird because, as you said, Michael, there are things that you want from an Agatha Christie murder mystery that this movie is not offering. But by not doing those things it is, I think, probably just going hard at its theme. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's it's a tricky balance if you're trying to deliver both things. Yeah. And, and and I think that's like you just said it then. I think it's a tricky balance and I don't know that it's tuned exactly properly yet. But to your point, Trisha, it's because no one's like doing this and no one has done it before. <laughs> right. And there isn't a like, oh, yeah, this is how you like balance these two things. And so, and again, that's as we've been saying, why I want him to keep making these because right. I think it is a really cool, fun experiment with genre. And even though it can be like frustrating to my taste at times it's also still eminently watchable and entertaining and that is quite a feat to be able to tune it well enough to arrive at that place i will say too while we're here talking about theme that the thematic content or sort of argument that knives out is having feels a little bit more like toothsome and sophisticated uh and so it feels like you in some ways, it's like tuned to um, just a more complex sort of wavelength. Like you have to be a little bit more in the know to kind of see what he's getting at with some of the character types. Glass Onion feels broader. Like it right. feels broader. It feels like the shots he's taking at these kinds of celebrities are cheaper. Like you didn't need to, you know, write them with um, I think that they're very sharply written and very sharply performed overall, especially Kate Hudson. Love her. <laughs> oh, and I love Dave Bautista. I love every, you know, like yeah. I love them all. They're, they're all doing a really great job. But these feel more like big stereotypes as opposed to like people who walk around and take themselves seriously. <laughs> like it's hard to imagine in a re in our reality, like a person like Birdie taking herself seriously. Whereas, you know, you can kind of see Jamie Lee Curtis's character being a real person who really walks around and takes herself seriously in our reality. And so I think there is this sort of, not that it's in any way like shallow, but I think it's in some ways more accessible in its comedy and more accessible in its satire, especially for people who are <laughs> very online, um, as a lot of us were forced to be, especially during the pandemic. I think that what it's like the, the class of people it's satirizing, um, are easier targets in some ways. And the movie is kind of taking cheaper shots at them than it does at the family and knives out. And I think that kind of affects the third act, which I'm, I'm curious to talk about. I'm curious to hear your guys thoughts on because it, it is interesting that as we've talked about, there's all these kind of subverting the murder mystery stuff to make these other points and do these other reveals such that like, yeah, my experience was that when we got back to the island, it was like, oh, this isn't a murder mystery actually. And it kind of never was. And so now what is it? And that the, the final climactic kind of the last moments are, you know, Catherine Hahn and Leslie Adam Jr., like them, like all the these people deciding like, no, we're not going to like continue to lie for Edward Norton. And it just was interesting that like that was, you know, obviously Helen has her big triumph and all that stuff. But it felt like at the end there, the movie really wanted me to be like, 
like happy that these kind of terrible people did a good thing. But I felt like the movie spent so much time taking shots at them and not framing them and with like a sort of a third dimension that I I wasn't emotionally invested in them. Uh, Helen's arc, you know, begins halfway through the movie. Like she's a brand new character that we didn't know that maybe also is dead that we don't know because the last right. we saw her, she was dead. And so she's maybe dead and her sister is dead. And like, but is she is she really a twin or is it Andy pretending to have a twin? Like mm-hmm. there's just so many other things that could be happening during all of that, that like when the movie plops me back down for the third act, I feel um, like less unmoored from the rest of what's what's going on and what's going to actually ultimately pay off other than it's fun to really watch Miles Braun uh, get his comeuppance because uh, Edward Norton <laughs> is just so good. Everybody's so good at this. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about all the performances, but a couple of thoughts off of what you just said, Michael. First off, it's interesting because watching the movie again, that final scene where they all change their mind and say, I'm not going to lie for you anymore and raise their hands and say the truth. I read that actually as less like I was supposed to feel something and more. I almost felt like just part of the kind of cynicism of the film where it's it literally took, you know, he had to destroy the Mona Lisa and have the worst PR disaster in history for them to be like, I'm not attached to your golden tit anymore. You know, I've I now I can now I can tell the truth because you can't do anything more for me. Like you are now your clout is below zero. Um, so in some ways, the, it, that felt almost as part of the satire of like they, they will be good people the, or they will do right. the other thing as long once, as it's convenient. Yeah. Once this thing stops it's being the better sense. option. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but also, yeah, I think there's something about because I think the movie is still trying to position itself as a murder mystery with Helen as kind of like the Watson helper detective when it when in the flashback, they get back to the island and Helen is now snooping around. But yeah, but her snooping and her like checklist with the people, I, it doesn't really play for me. Like I'm not really with them as they're like checking off the boxes and putting together like the mystery, because I think there is something about like. I don't know if I unconsciously just knew by that point, but it just seemed seemed like from everything I know about Andy and Miles's relationship, like she's dead and like probably any of them killed her, but probably Miles had them do it. Like it, it, it didn't feel like there was a real like clear question in my mind and a clear like, ah, but it really could have been any of them for like different reasons. It all felt like it was about Miles ultimately. And so it, it, yeah, it, it did never felt like we were like engaged in a clear mystery solving activity with Helen. It was just getting more information that was excluded earlier, which was fun to see. Like we got to see the other half of the scene that was excluded. Which is always fun. Back but yeah, which is style. great. Yeah. But I didn't feel like I was solving a mystery. Yeah. And, and I think I mean, I think I've talked about this before, maybe on the Knives Out episode, but um, I've definitely seen whodunits where it's just sort of like here's a bunch of people and then at the end of the movie they're like it was this one and you're like okay <laughs> right sure like you know it could have been that one just as much as so that is what i appreciate about being like no it's it's pretty much the one that you thought it was going to be you know and of course they do like the ransom fake out is obviously really interesting in knives out because it's like he becomes her her sidekick you know so like that is like a really nice kind of he's like yeah screw that family let me help you like in your journey. So that's like a really nice way. The Miles fake out is basically like, oh, 
the poison was in your glass. So you might, you know, and that doesn't, I think to you kind of to your point, Alex, like that doesn't sell me as much on like, well, then he, there's no way he could have done anything bad. Right. It's like, no, like that well, because Andy's still... murder seems so separate from the island. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, there is, you are solving Andy's murder. You are, are solving Duke's murder and you are potentially solving the attempt on, uh, on Miles's life and the attempt on Helen's life. But I think to your point, Alex, it's not just like, it's not like here's one real big question. And then here's a bunch of like very succinct clues that add up to it and stuff like that. It's just sort of like, here's a bunch of stuff. And like, we're just, and again, like it's fun. It's interesting. Just like the scenes themselves are fun, but I agree with you that I wasn't like, Oh, right. Because of course they funded the political thing with the the stuff that the power does with the rock thing, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, whatever. And I think one of the things that I like about that section of the movie is how it doesn't feel like a murder mystery with a clear trajectory. Um, like Helen's Helen and Blanc's snooping feels so like out in the open. They're going to get seen like they're just ducking behind hedges um, and they're like <laughs> or talk, statue. Right. Butts. <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love how Ryan Johnson is sometimes so immature. It's <laughs> yeah. really wonderful to me. <laughs> Um, anyway, but like they're, they're not doing like authentic detective work in the way that we think of it or not graceful detective work at all. Right. Like she's just getting drunk and causing a scene. They're arguing really loudly in Benoit Blanc's bathroom about who did it. She's literally got a clue board written in a notebook, like making X's as she discovers things. She like throws her phone into birdie's bag to record and gets a perfect recording of that whole conversation but anyway it, it all feels like yeah so um unbelievably like sort of slapdash and obvious um in a way that really resonates i think thematically with what the movie is about it's like they didn't need to solve this mystery because it was never a big mystery like it, and I, I kind of appreciate that about that section of the movie that it's like, but the whole time we kind of like we were snooping around in like very non sort of traditional detective ways. Those scenes don't play like scenes from a detective movie that we've seen before. They're not like dusting for fingerprints or like finding tire treads or, you know, um, sitting in a lab like matching up hair or whatever it is. Like those are things that we expect detectives to do. And even like uncovering, you know, uncovering complex motives. And I think that Ryan Johnson is playing with our expectations of what detective movies are and what detective, what detectives do. And so the scene where she's just running around ransacking their rooms, like in the messiest way possible is so fun and hilarious to me. Um, and, you know, then she runs into that room and the the deadbeat is, Daryl, the deadbeat <laughs> is in there. Um, and it, that's kind of the one moment where she gets just dramatically caught where, like, she would have probably gotten caught a million times before this. But um, I just think that that's all, again, doing thematic work ultimately in the way that it's playing with sort of genre expectations and like what these kinds of movies typically are and what we think that they're going to be. Well, and I think, yeah, I think like you're saying the thematic thing, Benoit Blanc's speech at the end does, does tie it all together because in his, you know, 
there, there's the classic Benoit Blanc detective speech at the end of these movies. And in this one, he's just openly saying, this is all like so stupid. Like you are so <laughs> stupid. This is all so just like obvious and dumb. Uh, and I think that is uh, maybe that is just the glass onion thing. You know, that is what Ryan Johnson is like saying ultimately with this movie is that there is no there there. It's all just like the culture we are in right now is so vapid and empty. And so is the mystery. <laughs> like like all these people are just are are attached to Miles for like their own dumb, you know, influencer reasons like Birdie you know, thought that a sweatshop made sweatpants or whatever. Um, <laughs> but there's no like dramatic mystery to any of them. They're all just kind of these losers that are attached for their dumb reasons. I also really appreciate it the second time around that the quote um, that he says to Kate Hudson appropriately, uh, it's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought to speaking the truth. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like the, that's the lead line dropped. from this movie. Yeah. 2022, the movie. Well, yeah. and it, you know, ultimately, just to your point, Alex, it's a challenge to all of us, right? The only reason that this takes them three days to figure out is because they assume it's more complicated than it is. They assume that there's been intelligence and thoughts and cleverness put into it all, and there hasn't been. And so I think that that's like to us as, you know, people having to navigate social media and these kinds of personalities that invade our brains every time we open our phones. Like, by the way, maybe don't automatically assume that there's like substance on the other end of whatever it is that you're reading. And I like that it, you know, when you come back and it is Helen running around, it, it captured that aspect of knives out of like the kind of impromptu helper person that is not equipped for this but is now helping is now the watson to blanc's sherlock and i feel like that was a fun like callback or like a thing that felt like knives out established that as like a a fundamental thing that I want to see continue throughout these. And I didn't know I wanted to see it until I was seeing it. And I was like, oh, yay. Like, this is fun. This feels like Knives Out to me. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, the two broadest strokes that these two movies both do is like the the protagonist, I would say, because I feel like it's not Blanc in either of these movies, is this sort of like, you don't belong to our cool club person right so it's marta as as like the help you know and then uh and then helen as like i'm not part of i'm not one of the what are they called the disruptors disruptors thank you uh you know so so like obviously there's like a huge thematic thing going on there like this is the character we actually care about and we just want them to like get victory over literally everybody else in the movie um and then the sort of opposite end of that is just like the richest, whitest, malest person is is just the villain. Like they they are the one who needs to be brought down at the end. That can be too obvious if you do it every single time. But it was it was it's delicious enough that at least twice is is good for me. And I'm so okay with Helen becoming like a recurring Watson character if he decided to do that. Because there's, there's something oh, yeah. about the ending where he's kind of like time to go home and she's given kind of a look to the camera almost of do I want to go home or do I want to keep doing this? And I think, I, I mean, I don't, I think maybe you lose an opportunity there to have the next, you know, Helen in the next movie. But I did really enjoy that character and thought just like, 
I, I do. I, I love what you identified, Michael, of just there's this kind of younger female Watson thing happening in these movies and just Benoit Blanc's character and his like Southern genteelness, like combined with that energy is like such a delightful mix. And I hope that continues, whether it's a repeat character or just they always have a new one. Cool. Well, why don't we go around and see what lessons we're going to take from Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Brian, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, something that I'm just really appreciating about Ryan Johnson in general is his ability to just show you something that you remember and then recontextualize it later, you know. Um, and I, Last Jedi, minor spoilers, but they're the like the feet in the duel at the end moving in the sand and, you know, without without saying too much, like that becomes incredibly you don't you don't even realize you saw those shots of their feet sort of sliding in the sand until a few minutes later when you're like oh i saw that and i didn't even understand what i saw but like my brain registered enough that when there was a payoff i was like oh man um and uh you know so it's like you have these shots in this movie that are just like you know that shot of andy where where Kate Hudson and Catherine Hahn are talking um, and then she's there. Right. And the shot kind of like lingers a little bit and it's like, and then later you see that shot recontextualized, you know? And I think it's a really important thing to do. And this is not just plot twist type stuff, um, but it's really important to, to make us actually see the thing in the first place. So then it becomes more rewarding later when it is paid off um, as opposed to, you know, I think like maybe like Oceans 12 is kind of guilty of this of just like, here's a bunch of new information that there's no, you didn't you see it. You have, didn't yeah. hear any clue. There was nothing, you know. And what I appreciate about about both of these uh, Knives Out movies is is Johnson's ability to be like, you're really noticing this thing. You know, you're noticing Andy is really upset with these people for some reason that you're not sure of. And then later it's like, oh no, now you're seeing why Helen was nervous or why Helen was upset with those people or whatever it was like, what is this new information? But it's all images and it's all moments that you noticed the first time around because the movie wanted you to notice them. And then there's, sorry, but um, I think I talked about Deja Vu uh, before the Denzel Washington movie, which is not a great movie, <laughs> but... <laughs> There's a shot at the beginning of the movie and he is walking. I think it's like the first shot you see him and he kind of cups his hand over his nose in this way. That's just, it's like a noticeable gesture that he does. And then you see that shot again much later and it is, it gives, it has like so much more meaning, but the only way you know it's the same shot is because you, because the movie was like, look at this shot. Like, look at this thing that I am doing. Um, I was frustrated with Inside Lewin Davis for doing that like Oscar Isaac like pokes his head into frame from the side of the doorway. And then later in the movie, it shows you that same exact shot, but it's not supposed to be the same day. It's supposed to be a different day. It's confusing. Um, <laughs> listen to, like listen, listen to me be confused on that podcast. But, uh, but that sort of thing of like, Oh, I really noticed that I noticed that thing. And then there's this like sub genre of that, which is you saw it, but you didn't know you saw it. So uh, Duke grabbing uh, miles's drink. So like, watching it the second time it's like no miles just miles hands him his drink hands it straight to yeah. yeah and it, but it's but it's not the kind of thing you would notice you know like why would you notice it um and then later when he's talking about it then you see the 
alternate shot of that, which is Duke grabbing the drink. Uh, and then, of course, then that's brought back when when they're having their little revelations. And then even another super simple thing is right before Helen is shot, she runs up to to Blanc and he says, Helen. He says and Helen then, right to her and face. And then she yeah. says yes. like, right, yes. she has like two lines in Helen's accent. Yes. Um, and then she's shot. But it's just like, I really appreciate that sort of the other side of the thing I'm talking about, which is which is like stuff that you didn't even realize you saw at all. <laughs> but then when you when you watch the movie again, it's like, oh, no, the movie just literally put it there. And I just my brain was like busy doing other stuff. So I think I think he's just has like a real talent for knowing how we are going to notice or not notice things and using that really well. And so, you know, the lesson would be do that um, <laughs> in, in the sense of like of like kind of kind of just like and that might just be iteration it might just be like showing scenes to people and like interviewing them and saying like you know if you when you read this scene in the script what did you take out of it did you notice this did you not notice this right um so it might take a lot of work to like find that balance but i think it's it just pays off like crazy when it's done right yeah it was so rewarding on the second viewing to to realize wait he says helen to her yeah as she runs up to him before we know it's helen and and i just completely did you know you just your brain assumes he just made a sound and yeah yeah i was noticing this time around specifically when duke says he almost got pancaked on the road <laughs> and it's such a weird turn of phrase you understand intuitively what it means but it yeah. just seems like an oddly colorful way to describe like almost getting in an accident on your motorcycle um and it becomes very important later and so like not only do we notice that he said it that way but other characters notice that he said it that way right and it's like i think it's yeah to just re reinforcing what you said i think ryan johnson has a talent for like i'm going to remember he said that he almost got pancaked on the road um because of just the word pancake like right <laughs> But then pancakes, yeah. like then with the Anderson Cooper, mm -hmm. like at, Andy, at Anderson Cooper's party, right? So then it's like, oh, that's a name I know. So like, I'm going to remember that that reference was made at some point in the movie. Things like that, as opposed to other lines, which maybe throw away lines that that you they're not going to stick in your head in the same way. Well, yeah, yeah. Like I think there, it suggests like a mastery of film language to understand exactly how to dial in. Because for me, the mm -hmm. moment was the shoelace moment. Where when they arrive on the beach, mm. uh, Andy mentions to Blanc that like you know your shoes untied or you got a flat tire, right? Mm. Right, you got a flat tire, and it was like notable because she hasn't said that much, but also isn't such a big deal that it's like red flag. This means something, and I was like, oh, maybe this is almost like a save the cat where she's been cold, but she's nice to Blanc, and so like this is making us like her more. So like there's, it's hiding these things in in events that are doing multiple things at once. So like, like you're, you know, the humor of the Anderson Cooper joke, like there's giving it another reason to be there helps mm -hmm. it be memorable. Um, and also helps hide it in plain sight if that's what you're trying to do. Cause it's like, well, there's a, there's another reason it could have been there, but right. there's just like, just a little bit of like, he puts just the right amount of spin on it to be like, but there's something here, but I'm not going to think about it until it's time to think about it. And then it's going to be like, of course, uh, and that's really hard to get right. And he yeah. does it, as you're saying, Brian, very, very well. And a couple fake out things like Andy bumps into Duke while he's holding his drink. And then yes. I think Whiskey also bumps into Duke. Right. So like yeah. those little like, here's a thing that that maybe you should notice. I don't know. We'll see. 
yeah, yeah. no so much fun i just love i i, I you just feel his like presence mm. <laughs> in in these movies they're just like just having fun right yeah cool alex what's your lesson uh my lesson is i really think that there's part of why maybe i re-engaged in the second half is not just because it was fun to meet Helen's character and get to know her, but because I believe she was going to die. And I think it was really smart of Ryan Johnson to save the reveal of her not being dead till later, because, you know, everything in that flashback is in the context of, oh, crap, you are going to die. You're going to come to this island, you're going to die. And there, and there are discussions being had between them of like oh this is gonna be very dangerous are you sure you want to do this she's like an elementary school teacher she's like a sweet person you don't want her to die and it engaged me emotionally to think oh no oh no like you're this good person and you're it's not going to end well for you so i just think it's really there's some really clever choices made of like when to reveal what information and what what expectations you want us to have in our heads during different sections of the movie. And, and I really, I think it, it served that section of the movie for me to believe that she was going to die at the end of this night. Um, so just, just really good choices there. And also I just want to, yeah, we've, we've kind of brushed by it, but just Edward Norton, I think is just like so perfectly cast and just so perfectly embodies the character of Miles Braun. I just, yeah, I, he just couldn't be better. I think he was just perfect. <laughs> So cast Edward Norton in fun, <laughs> juicy roles yeah. is another yeah. piece of in advice. As many things as yeah. you can. Yeah. I feel like especially at like the scene after, uh, you know, Blanc ruins his, you know, his game, his pride. Uh, the amount of just like polite, utter hatred, frustration, like those, that tension in him is just so believable and funny. And that's when I was like, okay, this is, I'm super bought into anything else that's going to happen now because I love that this scene is happening and it's yeah feels so real to that that kind of disappointment. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, mine is I guess just about actually costume and production design. Um, I think they're doing so much heavy lifting here. You get this as a lesson from really thoughtful writer directors, right? When you're just the screenwriter, you don't get a lot of control over the production design or the costume design. But when you are a writer director and you're being given a fair amount of leeway, you can control a lot of aspects of it. And they do a lot of work in both of these movies. And in, it's interesting that in Knives Out, the costume design and production designer are both incredible, um, but they're kind of put in the background in a way. And again, because this movie is thematically dwelling on like these people's appearances, Right. Like they are they a lot of them have their entire, you know, fortune resting on um, how they appear to the public. Right. Their public image. The very first scene of the entire movie, we meet Claire and she's going on CNN and she's got a roller in her hair and she's trying to hide the fact that her house is a disaster and all this stuff. Again, there's this like camera public appearance to the whole thing that the costume design and production design really do a, a, an incredible amount of work um, in telling us who these characters are and what the movie's about and what's going to become important. Um, and I think you see that with the costume design big time um, in all the characters, uh, especially Kate Hudson's um, character, Birdie, but then the production design of the entire place, like 
the glass onion itself and all of those glass statues and all of the like everything that ends up, you know, getting broken on the floor in that finale. I don't walk into the room early in the movie and think to myself, all of this stuff is going to get smashed. Every single glass uh, statue in this giant, giant glass room is going to get smashed and broken on the floor. But then when it starts happening in that like cascade of uh, revenge, I guess, it is a big catharsis uh, because you can see the care that was put into the production design by the people that made the movie and then what it says about Miles's character. No one ever says to Miles's character, you know what? You don't seem to have a personality of your own. You just collect a bunch of stuff that other people think is cool. No one ever says that to him, but that is exactly who he is. And when you look around that room, that's what you see. You see somebody with no taste of their own who just has a bunch of different kinds of art that they think is cool. There are some amazing visual gags with Miles's costume design also about his lack of original ideas. It's all speaking to the theme of the movie and that it comes together in the plot at the crisis and the climax and all of this stuff. And so I just, I just think that that is a, such a satisfying experience as a moviegoer when you're able, when you're in the hands of a director who's controlling every aspect of the production and it's all dovetailing in thematically with the script and the characters and everything else. And so just want to say, like, this movie feels a lot like team, like, a, you know, the creative team was all exactly on the same page of what the movie's about. And it's kind of shouting at you from every corner of the frame. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting the things that are drawn attention to Versus are just left behind because there is, you know, there's the Mona Lisa. That's a big deal. And they make a big point about like, this is the Mona Lisa and the mechanics of all of that. It's able to do all these things where it can be the focus. It can like hold up under like intense scrutiny and make sense. But also, as you're saying, filling in the frame in the background, giving richness to everything that's happening and defining character, defining relationship. Uh, and like also just creating a physical space in which to have fun murder mystery things and like spaces for people to move down the stairs and up the stairs. And there's a bar over here. Like all these things are like critically important to creating a really fun, like dynamic flow. And you can tell as you're saying that it's all crafted very intently um, with intention to make all that as, as fun as possible and good as possible. And I do love how that main yeah, gathering room, it, there is just like an uncomfortableness to it. Like you're right, Trisha, there's, there's no cohesion. There's no taste. It's just kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is authentic to the character. Exactly. Yeah. I, so I've been thinking about tone because I think you mentioned it earlier, Trisha, and like when creating a sequel, what are you making a sequel to? And obviously this is an interesting standalone sequel so it's different than other sequels but like do you are you making a sequel plot wise aesthetically tonally which things are you leaving behind which things are you taking with you and he talked a little bit about this about um, you know and aliens and you know james cameron sequeling and and all those things but it was interesting to me that the tone of this was so different than knives out and how okay I was with that in a way that I wasn't expecting like it this felt definitely a little like 
a little bit more Austin Powersy than I would have yeah. like, guessed. <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> but it worked, and I feel like it ultimately kind of solved some of my like frustrations that I initially had with with Knives Out, where it's like it's a murder mystery, but it's also kind of not a murder mystery. And I was left being like, but I I'm standing here waiting for the murder mystery train and we're on this other like what's going on? And I feel like this movie tonally and through production design, but through all these things, signals early on and clearly enough that it's not gonna be the classic Agatha Christie. It's it's not gonna do that that thing. And like there are moments where the film is misleading you and you couldn't have known really what it meant. And there are moments where it is like seeding like clues. But overall, it was signaling to me, like, don't try to put this puzzle together. Like, you trying to outsmart the puzzle of this movie isn't the fun that you're going to have in this movie. It's going on this ride. And that was communicated clearly in this one in a way that it wasn't to me and Knives Out. And maybe it's just experience. But it was interesting to see how it felt both like a sequel while also being totally and stylistically different a lot more cg obviously and like the location was far grander and all these things that i wouldn't have expected but some kind of essence of uh, the knives outness carried on and carried over yeah i definitely just from a personal standpoint i like i missed the that sort of like new england slash sherlockian london kind of feel of the first movie just because i like that aesthetic right but I totally think, and you know, especially for all the thematic stuff we talked about, you know, the Trisha you, you brought up, like that this is the right call to make this to make a, a sequel to Knives Out, not just be like, here's another like old house, you know, like it's just like, no, we're going in a completely different direction, but we're gonna we're gonna do all the stuff you're expecting. We're just going to completely change this. So that way it's a lot easier than to have this franchise be whatever it is going to be from one movie to the next, rather than kind of really start to paint yourself into this, you know, um, uh, dark, dirty corner that, the, that right. the first the first movie set up. Right. And I'm excited to see, you know, and whatever Knives Out 3 is, you know, who's going to be the subject of the satire in right. the third movie. We've done the old money, new money kind of. And so and what does that do to the tone and what does that do to the location and all these production design things? Because that is where I think this movie succeeds is that there is a cohesion there with yeah tone villain theme uh yep. it's all pointing at the same kind of vapidness uh so i'm yeah i'm, I'm excited to see what he comes up with for the next one because i i'm i'm we've done the new money old money so what's what's the next money play money <laughs> play money it's all children. It all takes place inside a <laughs> yeah. kindergarten He's actually making the Monopoly movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, he's going to get somebody who deserves it. I think that's one thing we know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, what else have we been watching recently? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Yeah, so I caught an Amazon Prime show that I really enjoyed. Uh, I watched a TV show. On my own for no one told me to, (laughs) but it did did seem like it had been made sort of just for me is a a Amazon prime show called the English, um, starring Emily Blunt and Chaskay Spencer. And it's a Western and it's, uh, like definitely like old school, you know, old timey Western, um, Emily Blunt plays an English woman 
who has come to the American West for revenge, and she then teams up with Chaske Spencer, who plays a Pawnee scout um, and has his own agenda, uh, also related to revenge. And um, it's kind of just like a great sort of bloody anti-Western um, thing uh, that plays out over the the course of, I think it's eight episodes long. It's bumpy. I'm not saying it's like a perfect show or anything, but those two leads have great chemistry and a really interesting relationship. And I find myself thinking back over it, like by, by the, you know, later half of the season, I was like, okay, this is, I'm like bumping on things in the writing and uh, I'm not sure that this all fits together for me. And like, there's some convenient things that happen and I'm like, oh, really? He's he's back? I thought we left him in Wyoming and now we're over here and that was pretty far away. There's so there's like some just log- like logistical things and, and other contrivances um that I don't know if they work on a narrative level, but the the characters are just fascinating. Um and the way that it all, I don't know, it's just it's beautifully shot and very moody and very gritty and westerny so um really recommend uh the english is created nice. by hugo blick Very I mean, cool. emily blunt in a western i mean right. i'm sold <laughs> say no more yeah she's really good <laughs> nice awesome okay brian what have you been watching recently uh so i went to the alamo draft house in raleigh north carolina of all places to see bones and all the new film uh, by Luca Guaranino, um, who did Call Me By Your Name and the new Suspiria movie. And it's scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. So that was definitely like the one of the main reasons it was on my radar more than it would have otherwise been. Um, and yeah, it, it stars Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet as cannibals. And it's just a straight... <laughs> romantic drama about like cannibals. sort of about cannibals you know and <laughs> there's a little bit of like of like a fantasy aspect of like there there's like this is kind of like a, a almost race of people in the movie the universe of the movie but like that's it that's where it stops otherwise the movie is just like nope this is just like a an affliction that some people have and it makes them different. So there's like thematic stuff going on of like, what does it mean to be different in a world that sort of doesn't accept you? That's like not built for you kind of thing. That frowns upon and cannibalism. Then, okay. That frowns upon Doesn't cannibalism. want right. you to eat them. There's some really yeah. interesting like metaphorical <laughs> yeah. stuff going on. And then there's definitely times where I'm like, but maybe this is just a movie about cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's definitely a movie where I feel like the, the, there's like a lot of thematic stuff there and like metaphorical stuff there, but it's not, it, you know, I, I need to do more thought work to see like what it's all trying to say. Um, but it's just a really fascinating movie. It's really, it's not a horror movie. Like it, you have to have a horror movie stomach to watch it, but it is not genre wise. It is not trying to be a horror movie at all. So it's just really bizarre how it's it's taking this kind of like horror thing being like no we're just going to try to play this straight um mark rylance is he looked at his filmography and he said i'm going to make all of these creepy ass characters look like just regular dudes uh, by comparison <laughs> to my performance in this movie wow um wow. yeah just little little braided ponytail and stuff and just yeah he's in some tidy whities at some point it's it's all it's all good stuff um 
And, uh, and yeah, so I, I was really fascinating and I'm also really fascinated to see Luca's next movie that Trent and Atticus are scoring. Cause it's a sexy tennis comedy starring Zendaya. Wow. So that's going to be, you know, just what a filmmaker. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a sexy tennis, tennis comedy starring. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> right. But like. I'm so intrigued. Like yeah. I never like those words in a row. It's like <laughs> by this director. How <laughs> scored by? Yeah, okay. Scored yeah. scored by the yeah. dragon tattoo people. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can't. I can't wait to have you tell us about it. In the <laughs> awesome. Cool. Alex, what have you been watching? Well, uh, everybody's been yelling at me to watch The White Lotus, including you, Michael. Um, and I was resisting because I watched the first episode of season one a while back and was underwhelmed and kind of like, yeah, that was fine. I, I, there's so much stuff to watch and so many games to play. Like, I can't be wasting my time on this, like, you know, mid show. But uh, people kept yelling at me about season two and they're like, just watch season two. If you can't do season one, it's an anthology series. Just just watch it. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to watch it. Who are these and people? <laughs> so like my brother, my brother's <laughs> wife, like Michael and Anna, like every, like so many people were just yelling at me about it. And I'm glad they did because season two was so much fun. It's like beautiful people at a beautiful Sicilian uh, vacation uh, having so it's an ensemble cast that is like one of the best ensemble casts I've ever seen as far as just every character is so well-defined. They're all exploring similar themes about sex and power, but all from different angles, different perspectives, different, you know, generations. Uh, it's all, yeah, they're all gorgeous. Everything's gorgeous. And it's just so funny. So uh like delicious mike white who's the creator he, he just like gets it he, he's plugged in to a lot of the social you know milieu we're in right now and is just like going at it from every angle and so now i'm going back and watching season one and now that i'm a few episodes in I'm, i am enjoying it um but yeah i can wholeheartedly recommend season two of the white lotus you don't have to watch season one you can start there if you want to um but uh, i am sold and i am now yelling at you listener to watch <laughs> the white lotus as well and trisha i think you because like speaking of like vacation like murder mystery things like yes. that's really what this is is and like, like on theme also like yeah, the whole I time i think you would enjoy it so that's my last onion feels like. like a season of white lotus <laughs> right yeah like i think it's yeah, yeah it's really good awesome i've watched things but like We've already talked about them. People are like, I'm watching what we do in the shadows, the TV show. And every episode I watch, I'm thinking of you, Brian. And, Yay. Uh, and I finished. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I finished Andor. And so like maybe one day we'll talk about that. So lots of thoughts there. It was good. We'll talk about it one day, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> say that again. Wait, did you say what? It was what? Uh, I don't remember. He mumbled it was join, good. Uh, it join was our Discord good? to hear more. I, I thought I heard it was good there for a second. <laughs> like, don't get me started, everybody. <laughs> Michael and I have a, have a lot of mind melt about Andor, where it's like, the, I, I had some of the, the highest highs I've had in Star Wars recently, but also lots of just meh for me. Guys, 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 focus. This is our Ryan Johnson episode. We don't need to talk about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was the thought in my head. Anyway, so quick pivot. So instead of those things, 
I listened to an episode of the Ezra Klein show called Is AI the Problem or Are We? And it's an interview with this author, Brian Christian, who wrote this book called The Alignment Problem that's all about AI, artificial intelligence, deep learning, all this stuff, uh, which is obviously a very important topic. There's a lot of things happening around it right now. And so in my drive up and down uh, from NorCal, that has been what I've been listening to is this book, The Alignment Problem by Brian Christensen. If you want to actually understand what AI is and what people mean when they talk about it in an in-depth way and have a more clear idea of what it can do and what it can't do and what it is, moral ways to use it and clearly immoral ways to use it, the problems, the, the things that will backfire, the things that will push us forward. This book is the most like accessible and intelligent, like concise thing on this topic that I've encountered. And it is uh, changed my mind about a lot of things in both ways in relating to all of this. And um, if you know me and my stubbornness, that is impressive. <laughs> Michael changing his mind. <laughs> what? Wait, which one is the problem, though? AI or is it us? It's well, it's always <laughs> us. Okay. Humans okay. is always the problem. Just was checking. I mean, we, we yeah, made yeah. the AI, so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the tool. How do we use the tool? and like challenging the questions that we're even asking ourselves of like, what are we even trying to solve? We're making this tool that's really good at doing this thing, but is that thing actually the thing? We're... Anyway, it gets into all of it. It's really fascinating and I like very highly recommend it because I think it's only going to be more and more relevant and increasingly high rate of speed and we are not prepared for it. And I think this is a really nice way to like quickly become, um, knowledgeable about the subject so you can have smart thoughts about things um so the alignment problem by brian christian okay well this has been our conversation about glass onion uh, i really want to know what the next one's going to be called brian you had a theory right because they're all beatles songs well no the first the first was a radiohead song and this is a beatles song uh, but it'll probably be a song and there's a lot of bowie in this movie probably because they couldn't use beatles music other than for the closing credits so there's like two or three Bowie songs in it. He has artwork and stuff. So I'll have to do some thoughts, some thought, some thoughts having works in brain <laughs> for, for come up with title of that, but Perfect. could happen later. Twitter maybe will. I do. <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. I want to say thank you to the patrons for supporting this show. Uh, if you want to help us make more episodes uh, and get fun perks like voting on what movie we'll be talking about for our monthly patron exclusives, head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. We have merch also, and you get a discount on that. So lots of fun things over on the Patreon. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Happy New Year, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.